The reason that our country is in the mess that it is in today is not because of the Republicans, it's not because of the Democrats. Let me tell you this, it's because of lame Christians. There is a reproach that comes with being a follower of Christ. We in America have tried to reshape the whole church so that it's palatable and likable in the culture. A church that is accepted well with the culture is usually not accepted well with Christ. The church is a fortress, and a fortress is strength. A fortress is might. Not only a center of defense, but a place of strategic planning and offense. Our God does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us. He expects us to take up His banner and fight the darkness with His light. You want to know what the biggest problem with America is? The wolf is this country. Gave in. Gave in to public pressure. Gave in to political correctness. One of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. We have a very interesting subject to cover today, but first, please go ahead, hit that follow or subscribe button on the podcast platform which you're listening to us upon. We do have several social media platforms with all sorts of material that you can listen to and read. Be sure to check us out on our very active fan page on Facebook when you type in the at symbol Mighty Fortress 313. You can be sure to check us out on YouTube as well. And you can hit the subscribe and notification bell to help the channel grow. Now the YouTube channel, you can look us up more specifically at Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. Because if you type in Our Mighty Fortress, the song <laughs> will come up. So it's a little bit easier to try to find our channel that way. You can also take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com. There we have a host of media that you can look at. We have articles and videos and even a link to our merch store to help support the work. I'm ever designing more and more content there. So feel free to take a look at it. And of course, if you do feel so motivated to donate to the work that we do here, feel free to do so on our website through the established and safe PayPal link. By following and supporting the podcast, you let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today, I want to talk about what I call the missing element. And in fact, this is what the Apostle Paul alludes to in the book of 1 Corinthians. I want to talk about one of the more hotly contested books of our time, and that is the book of 1 Corinthians. But I want to zero in on a particular chapter. Now, there are many reasons why this is a very contested book. You have the charismatic movement with Benny Hinn walking around waving his jacket across the crowd and people are falling over, supposedly being knocked over by the Holy Ghost. Or, of course, you do have the sinful gay pride movement twisting scripture from it. There are also many interpretations of end times revelation scenarios that are debated amongst theologians and that has caused quite a stir throughout history. Now, there is something very important to keep in mind about the book of 1 Corinthians, written by Paul the Apostle. It's mainly a book rebuking 
a carnal church that needed adjustment. That is the context of the study, of course, and with Paul really correcting Christians who were not doing what they were supposed to be doing before Christ. One of the topics that Paul addressed in chapter 13 is how to love. This word, of course, is so misused today, and I could spend an entire podcast talking about that. It has been said that our Western culture has lost what that word even means. Now, I do want to take a look at the word love and what it means. I mean, when you say that you love someone or some or something, what does that even mean? Let's analyze what it means to love. And then especially we're going to apply this in how God expects us as Christians to love. And this is very important in our Christian lives. With that introduction, let's get right into this. Now, the word love in English is a pretty general type of word that applies to many different contexts. And it takes context to really figure out what you're talking about when you use the word love. You can use it for loving food or loving a person or loving a dog. Now, all three are different kinds of love, even though there's some similarity and some overlap between them. Of course, we are limited here in the Western world by English and its use. And English is an extremely difficult language to learn, especially if you're a foreigner coming into the Western world, because we have rules for the language, but then we break them all the time. And then we have words that sound the same, even though they're spelled differently. So a foreigner hearing two, two, or two have no clue what you're talking about until you will try to apply it in the context in which they're trying to learn the overall language so they can't have a hard time figuring it out. So English is ever evolving and it has evolved over the last, you know, few hundred years or three or four hundred years, actually. But there have been languages throughout history, like Koine Greek, for instance, that have been much more specific in how it uses various words. Now, the Greek language is one of the more specific languages uh, out there in history or out there in the scope of history. Like, for instance, in, in Koine Greek, there are four words used to convey the love of something. You have storge, which is a family love, eros, which is a sexual love, phileo, which is a friendship kind of love, and agapao, or most notably known as agape in its feminine form, for like an undying love. Now, only phileo and agapao are used in the New Testament. The use of each of these can change the context of a conversation that you read in English with the use of the word love. Now, of course, as history plays out and languages change, you do see some overlap between the use of phileo and agape. I'll just say agape because that's what everybody knows that compared to agapao. So you do see overlap between phileo and agape at times. But primarily, the definitions are going to be the same. Now, for instance, 
what do I mean by overlap? Like if somebody is stumbling drunk or intoxicated and you hear and you're walking by and you hear them and they're looking at their friend and he's like, I love you, man. I mean, is he talking about agape kind of love? No, probably not. He might have say used that word context for phileo, even though it may seem like a agape kind of love. Now, of course, we hear that in, in English, but we're just talking about context. So that's what I mean about some of the overlap that's there throughout history. It's not always just strict definitions, and some of that is true in the scriptures as well. But primarily, phileo and agape mean what they mean. And of course, the other two uh, words for love are not used in the scriptures, like storge, which is a family love, and eros, which is a sexual love. So the word usage is important, and it does mean something. So when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and the love chapter, for instance, it's good to understand the context of how words are used. Not to mention the culture that surrounds the entire reason why the book is written in the first place. The Greek line of thinking in the city of Corinth at the time was pretty corrupt. This is going to help somebody who studies the book of 1 Corinthians because you look at the context of what Paul is dealing with, he sees a lot of the Greek culture filtering into the church. What do I mean? Well, the Greeks exemplified man. For instance, games would eventually be called you know, the Olympics later on in history. Well, those were held in Athens to celebrate the winners of various races and competitions. The Greek gods of mythology were merely personifications of themselves. Celebrating one's gifts would be a problem in the church of Corinth because of the nature of Greek thought that they were raised around. They would battle each other of, over whose gifts were the greatest. And it just comes from the, they're a product of their culture because the Athenian culture was just so prevalent throughout all of Greece. Now, Athens was also the philosophical capital of the ancient world. And of course, the Romans well respected the city and made them one of the only free cities in the central part of the Roman Empire. That's pretty profound, and that goes into a completely different subject. But the Athenian thought affected all of the Roman Empire, but especially Grecian cities like Corinth. Some of this vain type of philosophy had entered into the Corinthian church and it had to be corrected. The letter to the Corinthian church was written to guide them in correcting errors that had gone on and specifically some heinous type of sins that were taking place. There were many things from the misuse of tongues, but there was open fornication uh, massive pride taking place in discerning spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 is normally called the love chapter in the Bible. Paul tries to illustrate to a church in Corinth the importance of love above all else they might do for God. Let's take a look at the first few verses. In verse 1 it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity or love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have, and though I have all faith 
so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Now, in the first three verses, Paul tries to illustrate the importance and great need for love in what they or the church does for each other and for God. In verse 1, he states that if he were to speak with any given language of man or a hypothetical language of angels and have not love, then it would be nothing more than just clanging instruments, not actually just being played, just tinkling cymbals or just uh, blowing through a trumpet but not knowing any notes or whatever, just randomly doing something. It doesn't mean anything. What's important to note that the word tongue used here is just another word for language. This is how it was translated in the King James English. Now, he doesn't necessarily state that there's a language of angels, but that if he did know one, it would be useless using it if he didn't have love. Some people get way too carried away with this type of thing. I mean, the only language that we actually know of that the angels had spoken in either, let's say, the Old Testament or even the New Testament would have been Greek or Hebrew or even in the New Testament, if you really want to go far, then, okay, fine, Aramaic. But they didn't speak in some heavenly language. They spoke in the language of men. So could there hypothetically be a heavenly language spoken by God or the angels? I guess it's possible. But that's, number one, that's not the point of Paul's illustration. And number two, nobody knows. This verse gets taken out of context quite a bit by the charismatic churches and false teachers to justify their vain babbling. I mean, being filled with the Holy Spirit is like, to them, like walking on all fours, barking like a dog. I, there's videos of craziness that goes on in some of these churches. It's unbelievable. Now in verse 2, Paul then communicates that though he would have the gift of prophecy or preaching, right, understanding all mysteries, having all knowledge, and having all faith in the world that could just remove mountains from his sight, but he doesn't have love, it doesn't mean anything. Now, he is essentially saying that if you're the smartest and most knowledgeable person in the world, it doesn't mean anything to God. It doesn't. You could have the supreme faith in God, like Elijah did in calling down fire from heaven. But if you don't have love, it means nothing. In verse 3, it states that you could have all of your property and assets and just given all to the poor. If you give your body to be burned as a martyr, but you don't have love, it means nothing. So the first three verses, you can see that love is the hinge by which we live our lives as Christians and perform any task for the Lord. Now let's take a look at verse 4 through 7. Verse 4 says, Charity, or love, suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemingly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. In Dr. Robert Gr Gromacki's book called Called to be Saints, 
He notes that there are 16 properties of love that are listed in the next set of verses. A Christian cannot be perfected in love unless he has all of these principles in his life at the same time. He, uh, now, Gromacki broke them down into five specific principles. In the first part of verse 4, it deals with our relationship to others and that we're called to suffer long and be kind with people. This is how you're going to endure and respond if people get on your nerves because not everybody is just going to, you know, hey, get along with you. Sometimes there are going to be people that annoy you. Well, you got to suffer along with them. Aren't we glad that God suffers long with us when we sin or we kind of grate on his nerves when we do, say, sinful things? We have to be careful not to be unkind in our daily dealings with people. And guess what? This is not necessarily easily attainable. You have to actively do this. You have to purpose yourself uh, to do this. And it's not something that you can just ascend and just perfect. Now, you get better over time, obviously, but you, you shouldn't be easily moved in the beginning when you first start. But as things progress, you know, sometimes you can be having a bad day and just the right moment something happens and you kind of been walking in the flesh just for a little bit, right? And then you can snap at somebody or whatever. That that goes on in daily life. So we constantly have to keep these things in mind. This, of course, comes from being able to walk in the spirit daily, all day. This is how we're going to be able to respond in kindness to someone who's not exactly doing a very good job of being on your good side. This verse also implies that we're not to envy our neighbors. This is much like the commandment that's given that's very similar in uh, Ex Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, where we're commanded not to covet anything of our neighbors. Gromacki's next principle is the relationship to self. He says this is between verses 4 and 5. To vaunt oneself means to basically brag about how great you are at being, being something. Now, <laughs> This is very easy trap to fall into, a very easy trap. All you have to do is be good at something and pride, you know, puffs us up. It makes us proud. It makes us think that we're superior compared to others. It's very natural. It comes as number one to ourselves. We always tend to think of ourselves first. Both of these characteristics deal with the issue of pride and thinking more than you ought to of yourself. This also involves an awareness of our actions and that we're not the person that does rude things around people. The modern term for this would be that we're to be a gentleman or gentlewoman with our actions. The next principle of love is our relationship to sin. That's found in verses 5 and 6. We're not to be easily provoked. This concept just walks hand in hand with enduring with people when they test your patience. This is especially applies with a person that intentionally tries to uh, provoke you. Now, this is going to be <laughs> definitely a learned trait. You have those that will kind of annoy you. Now, don't be a holier than thou and say, well, nobody ever annoys me. Now, come on. Sometimes there are times that you know, we feel a little bit more irritable more than others, right? And somebody can have good intentions, but they'll just get on your nerves. And you have to think to yourself... All right, I have to calm down. Let me think positively 
and you can work along with that person. Well, what if a person purposely comes forward and tries to provoke you? That's a whole separate thing in itself. It's very easy then to justify your actions and say, well, he or she deserved it. Well, love thinks no evil. This means that we're not to think evil towards another individual. To include those he would classify as our enemies. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 25, verses 21 through 22, we find that same concept when we're dealing with our enemies. We are even to actually take the extra step forward and actually bless and feed our enemies when uh, they're hungry or they're in trouble and we <laughs> give them drink when he or she is thirsty. <laughs> the scripture says that we heap coals of fire upon their heads. Now, I actually have personal testimony and witness to the fact that you've had enemies and the fact that you be nice to them, you apply that. You can totally change their perspective of you and things actually drastically turn around. Now, of course, I've probably made a lot more enemies than I had friends because I've had bad responses. We all make those kinds of mistakes and errors. I'm sure you, there's plenty of times you could think in your own past and where you look back and go, you know... I shouldn't have said this or done that. We all have those. But how we respond should be Christ-like. And it gives us a most excellent way to show the love of Christ to an individual. To rejoice not in iniquity and to rejoice in truth is the next part of the verse. This can be demonstrated when you're at work and you choose, say, I don't know, not to laugh at a dirty joke or whatever. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 9, it states that only a fool mocks at sin. We, as Christians, are to walk in truth. Second John chapter 4 and verse 4 tells us to do that. The next principle would be our relationship to circumstances. We're to bear all things when dealing with people when various circumstances come up. This principle also walks hand in hand with suffering long with people. Not being easily provoked. The love we have needs to withstand and hold out against any trouble and affliction. Of course, the last principle deals with the relationship to everything. The Apostle Paul tries to communicate in verse 8 that despite anything else that goes wrong, love will never fail. This is a reference to God because despite man's best try, they're all still sinners and fail from time to time. Now, God is love. That's 1 John 4, 16. And only God can be fully counted on to never fail to love us. Now, the last set of verses is verses 8 through 13. Let's take a look at those. It says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly. But then face to face, now I know in part. But then shall I know even as I am, I am also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity.
Now, these last set of verses have been the source of much controversy within Christianity, mainly because of the charismatic movement. The source of the problem of this debate is directly centered around the preconceptions that one brings to the argument. What is great about dealing with these preconceptions is that only one stands and the others miserably fall apart. The charismatic view of this and the spiritual gifts is that Paul is trying to say that they will last until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Of course, this view sounds good on the outside, but when you further scrutinize it, it takes on water and completely sinks. It was 1917 when this movement had its root and took off. It's kind of crazy because they'll say that, well, the spiritual gifts have been around. Well, are you telling me from the time of the apostles all the way until 1917? Uh, what happened to all the miracles and the healings and all types of things uh, for uh, almost 2,000 years? What happened to all of that until 1917? Then all of a sudden everything kind of took off? It just doesn't hold water. Now, this is interesting considering that spiritual gifts, they were used as signs and they were never taught. God specifically had signs as a method to validate a message. He used this in the Old Testament for certain occasions, but he used it especially in the New Testament to validate the church. But before Paul died, you started to see the sign gifts tapering off and disappearing. I mean, for instance, one of the last letters that Paul wrote, he's talking about leaving somebody, I think his name is Trophimus, and he left him in Miletus sick. Well, he's a great apostle Paul. Why, why didn't he heal him? Well, that's because the sign gifts were starting to fade off the scene. It had been years since he had performed miracles and the church had already been validated. Of course, in dealing the, with the passages that we read in 1 Corinthians, the counter perspective, counter perspective to this would be that when the perfect that is mentioned, which is the completed word of God is come, there are some principles that we can cling to and they're given by Jesus Christ himself. One of these is found in Matthew chapter 12 verses 39 through 40 when Jesus states that an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Jesus performed many miracles fulfilling the law's commandments for the verification of the prophet, but this was not supposed to be used as a constant everyday occurrence. In fact, very few prophets performed any miracles to begin with, but even with the ones who did, they were supposed to perform. I mean, were they really supposed to perform some parlor tricks for anybody that just demanded that demanded a sign from them? No, of course not. Whenever I hear about supposed faith healers, I say, do you ever wonder why they don't go into a church and just start healing everybody and cleaning the church out? Oh, but wait, those people don't have enough faith, right? nonsense. Now, Christians, we are to walk by faith and not by sight. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. In the same fashion, we don't have to wait around for this faith healer to come in town, but we can go directly to God and he can lay his hands on us and heal us. Or sometimes we may have to bear that thorn in the flesh like Paul did. The word of God would be our direction in this life and it teaches us all things and builds our faith in God. The apostle Peter did note this in the epistle of 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. 
he said that we have a more sure word of prophecy. And he said this, despite being the one that actually saw Jesus Christ transfigured, he said that even though I saw all of that, the word of God is more important. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 10 deals with while at the time before the canon was completed, the Christians only knew in part the sign gifts would be done away with. The sign gifts were in part because they were to start the church and show the world that Christ was the real deal. Paul now deals with the fact that a Christian's faith would be stronger than to require a sign of God to demonstrate his power. He concludes in verse 13 after saying that these things that and now abideth faith, hope, and love. Of these three, the most significant is love. Now when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we see the descriptions of some of the characteristics of that word love. You know, some commentators on this chapter, you know, they'll say that Paul was taking some of the flaws of the Corinthian church and doing a compare contrast with the nature of love. That may or may not be the case. It was supposed to help them understand their shortcomings as a church and to give them instruction to be able to fix the very sad situation that was the Corinthian church. The chapter does not describe all the characteristics of love, but it is a good springboard into further study. Now, in Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, going through 40, we find that Jesus Christ actually gives an astounding answer to the lawyers of the law when they tried to tempt him. He stated that man is to love God with all of his heart, his soul, and his mind. Then he adds that man is to love his neighbor as he would love himself. Then he says that all of the law and the prophets hang upon these two concepts. Now there's a little bit of background to Jesus' statement. You have to understand that when the law was given by Moses, there were 613 commandments. There were 365 prohibitions and 248 positive commands. Then King David came along and narrowed and simplified the law down to 11 commands. You find this in Psalm 15. The prophet Isaiah would then narrow and simplify them down, down to six commands. You can see that in Isaiah chapter 33, 14, uh, verses 14 and 15. In the book of Micah, that prophet brought it down further to three commands. This is found in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Finally, Habakkuk brought the list down to a single command. The just shall live by faith. This is found in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. The New Testament reaffirms the command in Habakkuk in Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. Now this may seem to contradict Jesus' command, but in fact all three concepts work hand in hand together. The two greatest commands given by Christ are much greater than a list of thou shalt or thou shalt not. And it gives much more of an understanding to the way God views love. While Paul was using some examples that were flawed in the Corinthian church to illustrate his points on love, 
we have to know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it fits right into what Jesus was saying in Matthew 22. But what is the balance in all of this? How does judgment override love? For instance, do we allow a robber to enter our home, take our belongings, kill our spouse or our kids, and then brutally murder us, all the while we're just loving them? <laughs> Does the principle of Matthew 5, 38-39 apply to this situation? Where it says, quote, Ye have heard that it have been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also, end quote. This can be a hard question, but if one doesn't know their Bible very well or biblical concepts, it's, it'll be kind of tough to figure out what, what you're going to do. The basic principles we must understand are the difference between pride and defense. If I'm walking down the street and somebody comes up and strikes me for no reason, then of course, Matthew 5, 38-39 applies in context. If I started or participated in a prideful argument and I get struck, then I'm in sin all, all the way around and the principle still applies. Now, the context changes when you're defending the innocent, as given in the previous illustration of the robber that enters your home. Would it defend the poor and needy and defend them from the wicked? That has to deal with justice. God is a God of justice. Then how you execute justice can sometimes be a very thin line. But that's where walking in the Spirit comes in and the Holy Spirit will guide you what to do you know, with that very thin line at times. Psalms 82 and verse number 4 says, Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. This, of course, is also the case for defending those who are going to hurt themselves in some manner. Proverbs 24 and verse 11 says, If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, talking about those who are going to die or want to die, are going to hurt themselves somehow, be able to help uh, love and protect them and help them in whatever way given. Now, there is another question that arises from this topic, and it's, when it's okay to become a martyr or not to become a martyr? When is it a matter of self-defense or when is it your time to die? Now, of course, that uh, that's a very fine line in itself as well, but I believe the Holy Spirit will give you very clear pointing as to the timing for that. But the overlying question uh, to help define it is like, does Christ get the glory? No matter what the situation is, does Christ get the glory? I mean, there were millions of Christian martyrs who gave their lives over the last couple thousand years for the furtherance of the kingdom. But one thing should be noted that there's nobody who went looking to be a martyr. I mean, Paul himself, and how many people tried to kill him? He didn't just go willingly to try to be a martyr. He eventually got captured and then taken to Rome. But we have to note that he didn't go willingly. Of course, with this with this question, it's not an easy answer that just applies to all situations. But the most important aspect of this is the Holy Spirit. But either way, executing judgment upon sin is also considered love. Because if you don't utilize judgment, you're sinning against God. Of course, the penalty would depend upon the judge and the laws of the land. 
But of course, never um, less than God, what God says. Here's an instance in which the love concept can come in and override some judgment in the name of grace. For instance, when a judge holds back a jail sentence for a young person instead of sentencing him to, you know, go to jail or prison, maybe he'll say, you know what, I want you to go join the military and straighten up. Well, this is knowing that this path could change and, well, I don't know about could, would change the young person's life and keep him at a life of crime. That would be grace bestowed by the judge. This principle is also found in the book of Psalms, chapter 82 and verse 4. That's also a reason why a nation after God would need a military. God and Israel had a standing army, and though sometimes, you know, they would step in and, or God would step in and deliver uh, them miraculously, he did expect them to fight from time to time and execute judgment. Now, of course, Israel at the time was not always walking in the ways of God, but the principle still stands. A loving God must be just and first and foremost holy. Thus, a man is supposed to be in the image of God. We are to execute judgment in love, but also in holiness. Much of the reason why we are to even show love to an individual, I mean, even if they're offending us, is so we can illustrate the love of God. Jesus states in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, he says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And quote, People not only see the holiness of our lives that reflect the commandments of God, but they see the love and how you personally dwell with them. This is where 1 Corinthians chapter 13 really helps illustrate the picture. We're called by God to stand out from among the world and have the light of God shine before all men. We can't be the light if we're participating in the darkness of this world <laughs> or we're walking in the flesh and still participating in the darkness, right? Yes, we're in the world, but we're not called to be sinful people in the world, okay? We're called to be a light to the world. There's a big difference. You're not walking amongst the world being just like them. You're being separate, being called out. We're to bear the light of the gospel. This is also part of the Great Commission given in Matthew 28, uh, verses 29 through, I'm sorry, verses 19 through 20. I heard a wise man once say to me that hurting people hurt people. And sometimes... It's better just to show the love of God to make a difference in that person's life. It really revolutionized and changed the way I dealt with situations. I'm not saying I'm perfect or I've achieved perfection in this, but I have gotten a lot better thinking about that. Hurting people hurt people. Demonstrating love the way that Paul states in 1 Corinthians 13 can be the difference between a person getting saved and going to heaven or not getting saved and going to hell. Now, we did say a lot of positive things, but I do have to note that not exercising love as 1 Corinthians 13 illustrates can also affect your relationship with God. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, and also in chapter 4, verses 20-21, God tells us that if we do not love our brothers and sisters, then how can we love him? 
He states that how can one love God whom he has not seen, yet he says he hates his brother whom he has seen face to face. Now that's very, you know, thought provoking. It's very important to understand that God states that this person walks in darkness and not in light. This means that you're in iniquity and being so actually hinders your communication with God, even in prayer. Psalms chapter 66 and verse 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Isaiah 59 and verse 2, it says, but your iniquities have separated you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Jeremiah 5 and verse 25 says, your iniquities have turned away these things and your sins have withholden good things from you. This concept is also found in the New Testament, Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24, and 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Same idea. Your sin can hinder your prayers. It's kind of scary in a way. That's why it's always good to keep a short account with God and ask for forgiveness. Jesus does state in John chapter 14 and verse uh, 15 that if someone says that he loves him, you know, God or Jesus, then, uh, then that man or woman will keep the commandments of God. This is a very important concept to understand because we need to check our hearts and see if we're even sensitive to God's word. Many say they love God. Many. But they don't do what God commands from the scriptures. God wants us to love in the matter that we place him above all else. Jesus also states in Matthew 16 and verse 24 that we're to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow after him. I hope that you have learned some very valuable lessons about the missing element, the element that all Christians need in order to walk with God. May we strive to be the light of the gospel to this world and be able to walk in love. I want to thank you for listening. And be sure to follow us on the podcast media. Take a look at our website, ourmightyfortress.com, and subscribe for more updates. Stay tuned next time for more great content, and remember to find your refuge and strength in our mighty fortress.